You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. As always, it's such a, a wonder and a privilege to get to gather together like this and worship our God. As I mentioned last week, we're nearing the end of our sermon series in Colossians, and, um, uh, which we've titled Complete in Christ. And I pray that it, that it has been a blessing and an and encouragement to each of you in your faith and in the hope of the gospel. It's, it definitely has been that for me and more. I've just been... Um, you know, incredibly challenged and convicted and encouraged by, by Colossians as we've been going through it. So hopefully it's, it's been that for you. And after this, we have two more messages in Colossians, and then we're on to, to something else. So that, that'll be sad for me, because I've just been really enjoying Colossians. But anyways, be, before we continue, I wanted to mention that for some denominations, today is what's known as Transfiguration Sunday, and an event that's celebrated on, on the Sunday that falls before the season of Lent begins, right at, at the end of the season of Epiphany. And uh, there's, a, there's a picture there if you want to throw it up. That's the transfiguration there. So for those of you who don't know, the transfiguration was a momentous event during Jesus' earthly ministry. Basically what happened uh, is that he went up onto a high mountain with three of his disciples, and suddenly, as it says in, in Matthew 17, verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And then at that point, Moses and Elijah also appeared and began to speak to Jesus. And, and they basically represented the law and the prophets that were making the way for the Messiah. And then after that, the voice of God, the Father spoke to the disciples who were confused as to what was going on and, and, and said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And that experience was so memorable for the disciples in reinforcing their staggering faith that uh, John would later write in his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, what they saw at the transfiguration was, was a revelation and confirmation of Jesus' divinity and glory. In that moment, the fullness of the, the manifestation of the, the light of the glory of God was clearly seen upon Jesus to reinforce that he is the Son of God. The glory came upon him, the very glory that Jesus would then humbly and willingly set aside when he died for the sins of humanity at the cross. But as Paul would remind us in Colossians, Jesus did more than just die for the forgiveness of our sins. In his death and resurrection... He also reconciled us to God the Father, filled us with his spirit, and now transforms our lives also that we can now share in and display that same glory and light to the world. Do we see what's happening here? Sometimes we don't. Sometimes I hear Christians praying to see a manifestation of God, like, like the burning bush or something which is not wrong per se, but, but it misses the mark. 
it kind of misses what's, what's really and, and excitingly going on because in actuality, what we've been learning and, and, and being encouraged by as we've been going through Colossians is that we, as Jesus' disciples, as, as children of God, that we have been transformed or transfigured in Christ to now be the manifestation of the glory of God among the earth. Of course, we're not and never will be God, so don't get any weird ideas, right? But, but rather, we've been selected, handpicked by the God of the universe to now shine as his lights in the world. Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18, he says, We who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Our lives are being transformed, again, transfigured into his image. We, we are meant to be the means through which the glory of the heavenly Father is revealed today on this earth. And of course, Jesus himself stated in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we, we the church, we're the salt and light of the earth. And, and this is really the, the very thing which Paul has been, been praying for and encouraging the believers in Colossae to pray for, that, that by the might of God they would walk in a matter, manner worthy of the gospel as saints in his light, bearing good fruit, and that they would have open doors or opportunities to display it and declare it to the world. To that end, the, the thing that I want, want us to understand and, and grasp this morning is, is this, that every single interaction we have with anyone outside of the church is an opportunity to shine as lights. Every single interaction we have with people outside of the church is an opportunity to shine as lights. Every conversation, every work, every interaction. In fact, as Christians, we, we represent and bear witness for Jesus and everything we do, whether, whether we like it or not. Uh, th- that's why it says in Colossians earlier that in whatever you do, in word or deed, do it to the glory of God. Which means that we don't just switch the light on in certain moments or, or specific occasions when it feels right. Or just, you know, when, when there's a time where the church is getting together to do some evangelism outside, that's when I'll switch my light on. No. Our light should always be on. Our light should never be hidden. And and as we grow and mature in Christ, it should get brighter and bolder. And this is the idea of Paul's final instruction for us regarding what it means to walk in a manner worthy of Christ in the world as we live out our lives. So turn with me there to Colossians 4. We're just reading verses 5 and 6, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. And he says this to them. Remember, this is in the context of everything else he's already said. And this is his final instruction, besides all the the goodbyes and things that, that come later. He says, act wisely 
toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Act wisely toward outsiders. Make the most of the time we've been given. Let your speech be filled with graciousness and seasoned with salt. Know how to answer each person. This, this is the call to be the salt and light of the world. There's, there's a story that, it, that I read in a book many years ago, probably over a decade ago, actually. It was very memorable. It's kind of funny. And, and I think I shared it at one of our men's breakfasts a few months ago. But, but it was about this, this man who was, who was driving in his car, and he was stopped at a red light. All of a sudden, the vehicle behind him started honking at him. And, and this kind of confused and, and perturbed him a little bit because he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just stopped at a red light. And so, so he kind of ignored it. And why is that guy honking at me? I don't know, whatever, right? But then the car honked again, louder and longer than before. And now the man was getting quite annoyed and upset, right? But, but he decided, you know, okay, whatever, let it go, until the horn went off again. And at that time, the, the man in the car had had enough. He exploded with rage. He got out of his vehicle, and he walked towards the car behind him, yelling profanities while exclaiming, why are you honking your horn at me? And the person in the car behind him, quite taken aback by this man's rage, responded and said, I was honking because your bumper sticker says, honk if you love Jesus. (laughs) Whoops. I'm sure we've all had moments like that. That's why I quit playing soccer, actually. Fortunately, we serve a God of grace whose mercies are new every morning, right? But, but the point of that story was to, to remind us that, that we, as Christians, represent Jesus Christ. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we're the image of Christ in a world that doesn't yet know him. And this is a, a wonderful and glorious thing, but yet, as Spider-Man knows firsthand, with great power comes great responsibility. It's, it's a joyful responsibility, again, to, to be sure. But yet, one, we should take seriously and, and constantly be aware of and even intentional in. And the fact is that, that non-believers or unchurched people or, or outsiders, as Paul calls them here, will largely interpret who Jesus is and what he's all about. And in fact, if he's even real or worth looking into by the way his followers act and speak. So what we do and say matters. It matters. It's, it's life and death. It matters. And, and make no mistake, the world is watching. Once your neighbor or, or your coworker or your friends at school or a family member finds out that you're a Christian, they're going to pay attention to what you say, how you react, how you treat others. All those things. And whatever their motivation is for doing it, they might be trying to catch you in doing something that's not Christian or whatever, or whatever preconceived ideas they already have, it doesn't matter. They're going to start paying attention to the way that you act and speak. The crazy thing is that, is that Jesus tells us that the world should see how we act and how we speak and then respond by glorifying God. Is that how, how people respond to us usually? Do people see your life 
and hear your words and respond by glorifying God. To be fair, Jesus also says in the same breath that some people will respond to our faith and good works with hate and persecution because the world hated him first. But it never says they'll be indifferent to us. And besides, as as Peter reminds us in his letter, regardless of how people respond, we're called to do what we've been called to do, to represent Jesus, to be the hands and feet of his his goodness and and love and kindness in our communities. And, and, And yes, some might respond negatively, but that's their problem. Right? First Peter three thirteen to seventeen. I'll read this to you. He he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And to be honest, these days we know that there are quite a lot of anti-Christian voices out there who like to accuse Christians as being evil or mean or hypocritical or whatever, and, and, and they want to be justified in their belief that, that we are that the arrogant, prejudiced, hypocritical bigots that Hollywood and social media keep telling them we are. And so we have to make sure, in as much as we can, for the sake of Jesus' name, that these accusations have no weight to stand on. Though, of course, one of the problems with that, unfortunately, especially in the age of social media, is that it often only takes one bad apple for the world to go, ha, I knew it, you're all the same, you're all rotten. In fact, uh, recent research by Barna has shown that our culture's untrustworthiness in pastors and church leaders has, has gone way up over the past couple of decades. Why? Well, one of the reasons is probably because there have been a handful of scandals concerning popular pastors over the past couple of decades. Leaders from IHOP, Hillsong, Mars Hill, Southern Baptist Convention, the Catholic Church, and more, who have used their platforms for their own selfish interests, manipulating for money or control, and even sexually or emotionally abusing people in their congregations or staff. There's so much sin and corruption that's coming out in the open lately, as it should, as it should. Nothing should be hidden, and justice should be done. But again, one of the downsides to all of that is that it makes the rest of us look pretty bad. We're painted with the same brush, right? It, it makes the world suspicious of all of us, and even though most pastors I know and follow have, have the utmost integrity and are wonderful examples of Jesus, but it only takes a few bad apples. In fact, it's amazing and sad how often, you know, and I've sparked up a, a conversation with a barista at a coffee shop, which, which takes a lot for me. That's like a huge step of faith. I'm, I'm a huge introvert. So if that's started already, I mean, like, I'm already, like, in it, right? And, 
with a barista at a coffee shop or, or a neighbor or, or a friend of a friend and, and, and we're getting along, you know, talking about the weather and how the week's going and all that kind of stuff. And then they ask the question, well, what do you do for work? And I answer, I'm a pastor. And then from their point of view, the conversation's over. <laughs> I just walk away. It's, it's frustrating getting painted with the same brush as those who've, who've abused the position, who've misrepresented Jesus. And so because of that, and, and certainly for other instances where so-called Christians have acted unwisely or arrogantly or selfishly in the public square, the world's impression of Christians and of pastors these days, and, and even worse than of Jesus and the gospel, is, is often one of untrustworthiness and disdain. But yet, we, we can't put all the blame on just a handful of people who've misrepresented Jesus. The truth is we need to look in the mirror ourselves because we've done it to ourselves too at times. How can we claim we're complete in Christ and then turn around and live our lives in ways that shows our neighbors and our coworkers the opposite? And I'm sure if we examine our lives, we'd all see areas where that's the way we're living. And on top of that, we do live in a morally complex culture right now. Some call it, call it a post-Christian culture because Christian ethics no longer rule the, the culture, which is hard for some of us to grasp. So they call it a post-Christian culture that, that quite often stands against Christianity just as a de facto position. And this is largely because quite often all they seem to hear from us is what we're against. Right? which only serves to confirm and affirm their position that we're their enemy. Here's the thing. This is, if we act like we hate them, they'll think we hate them. Right? If we act like we hate them, they'll think we hate them. Of course. And to be fair, again, this is all very complex because much of what we morally stand for and believe as, as disciples of Jesus does lie in stark contrast to the world's ideologies right now. So this, by default, makes us seem like we are their intolerant enemy that's trying to stop them from living what they think is their best life. Especially when we're standing on opposing sides of like, moral or ethical matters that relate directly to the public sphere, right? Like things that we, we can't be silent on, things like, 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 like uh, abortion or laws around marriage or sexual ethics or those types of triggering things, right? But are we walking in wisdom in the way that we speak about those things? Not usually. About our secular culture's impression of Christians, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons write, the morality of self-fulfillment has begun to bear its inevitable fruit. People want to fulfill themselves by doing things outside the bounds of cultural Christianity. As a result of this shift, any competing morality, say a religion, that seeks to constrain someone's pursuit of personal fulfillment must itself be constrained. If something or someone stands in the way of my fulfillment, that obstacle must be removed. That person represents the enemy, the embodiment of evil, so keep your beliefs to yourself. That's how the world views us. They hate us because they feel like we've hated them first. 
that's not the message of the gospel, is it? The message of the gospel is we love God because he loved us first. Right? We love God because he loved us first. And he loves us, he loved us while we were sinners. So isn't that what we should be displaying? Isn't that the wisest use of our time? The reality is, is that the more that unbelievers think we're trying to morally constrain them, the less influence we'll actually have in their lives. Besides, they won't stop living like sinners until they know Jesus. They need to know Jesus. Only Jesus can, can change hearts and, their, and therefore morals and therefore the way we live our lives. We need to show them Jesus. So the question remains, how do we shine as lights of Christ in a world that sees us as irrelevant, extreme, hypocritical, and constraining? Well, Paul actually makes it pretty simple from the passage this morning. He says we need to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Or as he writes earlier in his letter, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Which then begs the next question, in what manner did Jesus relate to sinners and to the lost? Well, in the Gospels, we can read that when interacting with tax collectors like Zacchaeus to to the Samaritan woman at the well to violent zealots to thieves, adulterers, and prostitutes, and even Paul who killed and persecuted Christians, how did Jesus relate to them? He dined with them at their houses. He hung out with them. He was gentle and kind with them. He had pity on them. He sat at their tables with them. He healed them. He befriended them. He prayed for them. He embraced them and invited them into his grace and into his love. In fact, he invited some of them to specifically be his disciples, to follow after him. And then he died for them. It was his loving kindness. It was his willingness to meet sinners where they were at and and invite them into his life that then caused them to recognize both their worth and subsequently their unworthiness, their sin, and then repent and be set free. So how do we shine as lights in the world? How do we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? By relating to our neighbors in the way of Jesus. By interacting and speaking to them with grace and with kindness. While demonstrating to them with our own lives a way that's different, weird to them even, but yet compelling. Do do we get that? We don't tell, tell people how to live their lives. We show them how we're living ours. And I want to mention that I actually received an encouraging message this week. It was very timely. It was somebody thanking me and, and, and the whole church for practicing what we preach. So be encouraged by that. We don't always get to hear about our impact that our faithful living for Jesus has on others. 
But again, that's also a reminder that what we do and say matters, right? The, the person heard our speech, saw our actions and how they lined up with our speech, and then gave glory to God. That's, that's awesome. And that's the goal. That's the goal. That's our church's passion statement, by the way, proclaiming the name of Jesus for the glory of God. That's, that's what we're all about. We want what we say and do in this place and then in our lives outside the church to properly and compellingly represent Jesus and his kingdom come. And we're not perfect, of course not, but we do what we can in his strength. And, and ultimately, we don't want to waste the opportunity we have either. And I've said this before, but, but I'll say it again. The reason that we're not all called up into heaven to dine at the table with, with our Lord the moment we got saved is because we have a divine mission to live out and accomplish on this earth while we're still here. Until our time is up or until Jesus comes again, we've been empowered and given the privilege and mission to make disciples and be witnesses to the wonderful and saving name of Jesus Christ in the world for the glory of God. This is who we're called to be in the time we've been given with the gifts we've been given and in the locations that we've been placed in. To that end, our, our calling isn't really about finding out where we need to be, right? We're always like, oh, God, where are you calling me to be? What are you calling me to do? All these things, right? But our calling is not really about finding out where we need to be. Our calling is to be image bearers of God in the places we are right now. We're called to be the reality and goodness of Jesus in our own pockets of a world that desperately needs to know him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes it like this. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. It's another one of those mic drop quotes, right? <laughs> Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. That hits hard. <laughs> the way we live and act and speak toward those outside of the faith should make them ask us, what's different about you? Can I have what you have? What must I do to be saved? To that end, we should be ready in those moments to give an answer for the hope that's in us. But ultimately what this means as well is that we need to be in the world. We need to be in the world. If your ethos or philosophy on, on being a Christian in any area of your life is more focused on hiding your faith from the world and doesn't prioritize going into the world, I would encourage you to spend some time questioning and rethinking and praying about that because that's not what Jesus did or how he called us to live. And of course, yes, there's moments when Jesus went away to pray by himself or, or spend time with his disciples only or, or, or be in solitude, which is, which is great, which is important. But those were intentional moments of rest and preparation, like we're doing here this morning at church, so that he could be primed and encouraged to then go out and minister to the lost and the broken and the destitute. So yes, things like Sunday morning church gathering uh, and times of solitude and times of prayer and, and all those things are definitely a important part of the Christian life, but for the rest of the week, from Monday to Saturday, we're meant to go out into the world to, to interact with and, and hopefully be a light 
of Christ to those who don't know him. And why wouldn't we want to be? <laughs> to, to that end, we're to walk with wisdom, though, with intentionality and with words that are full of grace and truth, seasoned with salt. And speaking of walking with wisdom toward outsiders, this is so integral. Because we all know that every person we meet is going to be different, right? So that means that every conversation is going to be different. Each person brings different ideas or struggles, questions, accusations, or personalities, which means that, that every interaction is going to be unique. And what I'm saying is there's no single playbook or guideline that'll work for interacting with outsiders. I can't give you a list of things that we should say to people, right? It's all unique, which means we need wisdom. We need wisdom in how to answer people, how to speak to people, and how to act around them. Wisdom is the ability to effectively apply the knowledge and the truth that we have in a way that'll be beneficial and purposeful. Again, our primary goal, though, is, is to represent Jesus. So in, in any and every interaction, we should have in mind this question, how can I rightly represent Jesus to those around me in this moment, whether by my words or by my conduct? And, and to make things easier, the answer to that question will always line up with the word which instructs us in our lives to reflect the fruit of the Spirit or the list of Christ-like things that, that Paul had called us to put on from the previous passage in Colossians. Things like kindness, gentleness, self-control, forbearance, patience, love, service, forgiveness, meekness, working as unto the Lord, compassion, and things like that. This, this is how we're called to love and represent Jesus to our neighbors. That's what it should look like. Anything else, and we're misrepresenting him which the Bible calls bearing false witness, right? Of course, sometimes life is more complicated, right? It's easy for me to just say those things out loud, but to actually do them and, and in these complicated relationships and situations that we find ourselves in. For example, how do, we, how do we show our neighbor love without making it seem like we're affirming their sinful lifestyles, right? It can get complicated, so again, that's why we need to have wisdom, though, and, and discernment in those types of scenarios as well. And, and the good news about this is that in James's letter, we're reminded that when we need wisdom, we only need to ask God, and he gives it to, it, to us. He provides it. Of course, we've already been given many sources of wisdom. One is through prayer and the guidance of the counselor, the Holy Spirit. But we also have the wisdom literature in the Bible, like Proverbs, that we can draw from as well as pastors and mature believers in our lives who are ready to pray and, and give guidance. And of course, we have Jesus' teachings, like the, the Beatitudes and whatnot, that we can use as our guide as well. Another, another thing concerning this, though, that, that I want to point out, because it's important, is that as we go into the world to be that fragrant influence of Christ, we also need to use wisdom and making sure that we don't put ourselves in positions or scenarios in which the world tempts or influences us instead, right? In other words, yes, we're called to go into the world for Jesus, but we also need to ensure that we're not taken captive by it, right? For example, if we're trying to reason with somebody about Jesus and they get argumentative, let's make sure we're using wisdom that we don't get argumentative back, right? Right? 
Furthermore, then, to, to be wise as we walk among those outside the church is to make the most of our time and the opportunities that we've been given. This means making every opportunity count as much as we can, being intentional as image bearers. Uh, Scott Pace and Daniel Aiken right? To redeem the time recognizes the fleeting nature of this life and, and the limited season of opportunity that is available for salvation. This understanding also magnifies the significance of every individual encounter and our urgency in leveraging every open door of opportunity for the gospel. We're not here forever, right? So, we need to be intentional. We need to, to possess a joyful urgency for the lost. Taking every opportunity to display some aspect of Jesus to those we meet on a daily basis, whether it's a one-time meeting or with somebody we see daily, right? And, and whether it's an opportunity to, to show mercy or, or grace or generosity or kindness in some small or big way, or whether it's an opportunity to share your testimony or, or to pray for someone or to model a Christ-like marriage or, or, or to invite your neighbors to dinner, or whether it's an opportunity to model joy and, and peace in a difficult circumstance at work, or, or whether it's an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that's in you and to proclaim the gospel to them. And whatever it is, we should make the most of the time we've been given. And to that end, Paul reminds us as well that, that our words matter. Our words carry a lot of weight. And because of this, as, as Christians, our speech should always be gracious. Always be gracious. In other words, never rude or condemning, hateful, argumentative, passive-aggressive, arrogant, impatient, slanderous, or, or whatever else. It should be full of grace. But yet, it should also be full of truth that is seasoned with salt. And just to be clear, seasoning our speech with salt doesn't mean acting salty or speaking expletives, okay? <laughs> it's, it's really the opposite. Though admittedly, some Christians, especially you know, recently, have, have gone, seem to have gone too far the other way, right? As, as good as their intentions might be, uh, where they think being gracious means being so nice to other people to the point that they water down the truth or even end up affirming sin for the sake of just not wanting to be mean. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying that in our conversations and interactions with others, we should be gracious. We should be compassionate, loving, listening, and understanding, but never to the point where we compromise the truth. As Jesus said, salt that's lost is saltiness is no good for anything except being trampled on. Our words need to be gracious and yet seasoned with salt. A, a wonderful example of this is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus knows her sinful lifestyle. He knows all that's going on in her life. But he doesn't run up to her and say, hey, stop, stop doing that, blah, 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 right? No, he's, he's gracious with her. He's, he's gentle with her in, in speaking with her and sharing the truth with her. And that is what causes her on her own volition to admit where she's at and then be set free from it. 
So again, like Jesus, our words need to be filled with grace and with salt. And the thing is, it's often only when we're being gracious, treating sinners like Jesus did, that will more likely be given the opportunity to, to speak the truth in love and share the gospel with them. Right? When they see our good works and, and that we're willing to listen to them and that we care about them and, and when we respond to them with kindness and compassion, that's when they'll ask us what we're all about. That's when they'll ask us, what's this hope that's in you? Another way of saying this is that our words along with our actions, our whole life, should be presented to outsiders in such a way so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good. So in conclusion then, after we have communion and we, and we sing some songs in worship together, and then you walk out those doors and leave this place stepping out into the world, Act wisely toward outsiders. Be intentional and make the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, yet seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Be the light of the world. Be the salt of the earth. Invite your neighbors through both word and deed to taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm-hmm.